Welcome to St. Martin in the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music. A special welcome to those joining us online. We've gathered together to celebrate the fact that William Byrd has been dead for 400 years. William Byrd is a fascinating person, not just musically, but historically. You could call him the great survivor for reasons I'm going to explain in a moment. He was, of course, one of the greatest composers of the Renaissance and was trained by Thomas Tallis at the Chapel Royal, after which he went to direct music at Lincoln Cathedral and then returned to the Chapel Royal for the uh, majority of his long career. But the thing about Tallis and Byrd that I find most fascinating is you've got to put yourself in this position of the middle of the 16th century where the whole of worship, without exception, had been in Latin until 1540, the 1549 prayer book, and then suddenly we started worshipping in English. Obviously, that was reversed by uh, Mary, but from 1558 onwards, there was a desperate need for music to accompany English liturgy. There was a massive gap in the market, and who filled it? Tallis and Bird which is why they uh, have become so well-known and why uh, their music uh, was so significant in the 16th century, because they were the two key figures who filled that huge gap and that need for liturgical music. They more or less invented the whole notion of the English anthem, the kind of thing we've, well, we've heard, just heard a psalm, but the whole tradition of an anthem at Evensong. Those of you who have ever attended Evensong will know you have an anthem after the second lot of prayers. Well, that, that was just created in the 16th century by these two composers. But they were terrible businessmen. That's another fascinating aspect about the two of them. They were granted, jointly granted, a monopoly for the printing of music and ruled music paper for 21 years in 1575, but their business failed after just two years. So, what did they do? They were given leaseholds in East Anglia and West Country. We don't want, need to worry about the people who were living and owning land there uh, because the need for, uh, for Anglican liturgical music came ahead of it. So that's what they survived on. They said they lived off these leaseholds for the rest of their careers because they were so rubbish at social enterprise. Now, finding hymn tunes from Bird's repertoire, bit of a challenge. So we've cheated a bit and we've gone for Talis. Uh, but it's our tradition at uh, Great Sacred Music to begin and end by singing a hymn together, which we're going to do. And you can find on the inside of your sheets, if those of you in the building, uh, you can find the words for O Holy Spirit, Lord of Grace. If you haven't got a sheet, they're available on the little desk uh, just at the back. Uh, John Chandler was a member of the Oxford Movement in the first half of the 19th century, prolific translator of hymns and a setter of those uh, hymns to broadly contemporaneous tunes. So this, uh, we're, what we're going to sing now, is a hymn written by the early 18th century uh, rector of the University of Paris, Charles Coffin. It's a simple meditation uh, on the Holy Spirit to a tune by Thomas Tallis. We remain seated and the voices will stand and lead us as we sing. O Holy Spirit, Lord of Grace. <clears throat>
Well, I've talked about the fervid liturgical environment of the mid to late 16th century and also about uh, Bird's failure as a businessman. But another dimension to the story is that from the 1570s, he, got, he became increasingly drawn into Roman Catholicism. And you might say, well, his religious views are his own affair. Well, no one said things like your religious views are your own affair in the 16th century. That's a very 21st century thing to say. He became a Roman Catholic in the 1570s. And we know this because his name is counted among the list of what's called the recusants. And the recusants were those who refused to attend Anglican worship. So that's how we know he became a Roman Catholic. His wife was even more ardent than he was. Yet, he had to live. So he continued composing music for Anglican worship. And his music was so much valued that people chose to look the other way about the fact that he'd become a Roman Catholic. And the reason why becoming a Roman Catholic was such an awful thing was that people were constantly expecting an invasion from Spain, the main Roman Catholic power of the time, possibly from Spanish Netherlands, which we would call Belgium today. Uh, and, uh, and so being a Roman Catholic was potentially being a traitor. But his music was so vital that they turned a blind eye to his theology. And an example of the dynamics of this is that here we are in the late uh, 16th century and uh, in the midst of this emergence of what we now call Anglicanism, the Protestant Church of England, we have a composition like Ave Verum Corpus. Doesn't make any sense at all. Such a Catholic piece of music being composed in such a Protestant uh, era of the church um, you may be familiar with Ave Verum Corpus, many settings of it. It's a short Eucharistic chant dating back to the 13th century and often sung in the Middle Ages at the elevation uh, of the host during the consecration at Mass and worshipped during benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. You, uh, the, 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 the prayer is a meditation on Jesus' presence in the sacrament, redeeming suffering in the life of all believers. Basically, you cannot get a more Catholic set of words than the Ave Verum Corpus. It is an extraordinary thing that Bird got away with composing this music without losing his head at the time, and we get to enjoy it today. Thank you. 
Well, we're going to look at yet another subversive element of Bird's music now in two further pieces. One interesting thing about William Byrd and Thomas Tallis is that almost nobody sang their music in the 18th and 19th centuries. They were bang out of fashion until there was a kind of revival uh, of their music in the 20th century. But Byrd left behind him 470 compositions. He was a busy guy. Why was he busy? Well, I think he needed the money. We just talked about the fact that his other sources of income weren't a great success. Uh, but it's also fascinating when you look beneath the texture of what was going on in the 16th century, because many of us who are used to churches and to Evensong, for example, are used to the book called the Book of Common Prayer. It's a very well-known book. The important word in that title is common, because before the Reformation, prayer was something that the priests and the monks did. It wasn't common. It wasn't for the common people. What the Book of Common Prayer did was made prayer available in their own language for ordinary people. Well, what, what Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, also did is he put together, you couldn't expect lay people to be saying seven sets of prayers a day like the monks did. He combined them down into two, morning prayer and evening prayer. And evening prayer, which he created out of the monastic services of Vespers and Compline, right at the heart of evening prayer, he put the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord. Why is that so significant? Well, right at the heart of the daily prayer of the common people uh, of England from then until today has been this incredibly socially subversive uh, anthem in which Mary talks about putting down the mighty from their seats and exalting the humble and meek. Well, that didn't do too much damage when it was just being sung by the monks in cloisters, but when every single parish in the land was saying these prayers or singing these prayers every single day, then you've got a very subversive element uh, compared to all the powers of the time. And then there's another level when we look, we're, so we're gonna hear uh, one of Bird's settings of the Magnificat in a moment, but we're also gonna hear Beati Mundu Cordy, and again, the music is so beautiful that you can miss some of the social significance of what's going on here, um, because Beata, Beati Mundo Cordy uh, is a setting of some verses from the Beatitudes, and you think, oh, how lovely, Matthew chapter 5, beautiful words, beautiful music, what could there be to object to? Well, this is about those who were persecuted for the sake of right or justice. Who is Bird subtly upholding when he's talking about those who are per persecuted for the sake of justice? He's talking about Catholics in Elizabethan England. He's talking about himself. So even though he somehow gets away with being a Catholic in Elizabethan England, even in the texture of the music in such a way that hardly anybody ever notices it, is a protest song about the state of Catholicism in an increasingly Protestant England. Let's enjoy these two pieces now.
It's time for us to sing again, and we've reverted to Talis again as we did for the first hymn. Uh, Talis's canon, one of possibly one of the most famous hymn tunes in the whole canon, I guess you could say. Uh, it was not originally written for this hymn. It couldn't have been because the hymn was written 150 years after Talis's canon was written. Talis's canon was written as a setting of Psalm 67 in Matthew Parker's whole Psalter translated into English meter. Who was Matthew Parker? He was Elizabeth's Archbishop of Canterbury. So again, part of the whole replenishment of the, of the, uh, of the liturgy in English uh, in the course of the Reformation, part of this whole industry of the creating of new settings for the Mass and for, for Matins and Evensong. So the, the hymn, Glory to Thee, My God, This Night, written by Thomas Ken as an evening partner to his hymn, Awake My Soul and With the Dawn, for, which for those of you who are uh, anoraks about hymnody will know was hymn number one in uh, the first edition of Hymns Ancient and Modern in 1861. Thomas Ken, also uh, a fascinating figure in the religious history of this country, he was a non-juror. It's a bit of a niche thing to know what a non-juror was. But he's a, a, what was interesting about him was Bishop of Bath and Wells. When James II became king in 1685, he swore allegiance to the king, even though he thought James II was dangerously Catholic. But when James II became explicitly Catholic and when was chucked out as king, went over to Ireland, fought the Battle of the Boyne, uh, was rejected as king, and when William of Orange and his wife Mary came to the throne in 1688, so-called Glorious Revolution, what were the bishops to do when they had sworn allegiance to a king who'd been kicked out but was still alive? Well, the non-jurors were, were the ones that said, I may not think much of the old king, but I swore allegiance to him. I can't just go and swear allegiance to somebody else. I have principles, as bishops did in those days. So, uh, so he became a non-juror. He had to resign as Bishop of uh, Bath and Wells because he wouldn't take the oath of allegiance to, uh, to King William, which puts a whole new slant on the oath of allegiance we were all asked to swear to Charles, the new king, just the other day. It, it, it could make a huge difference in the 17th century. Anyway, this is a hymn based on Psalm 4 about trust and confession and peace of mind. And once it gets into your system, you will be singing it for the rest of today, I promise you. Uh, we remain seated. The voices stand and lead us. Glory to thee, my God, this night.
Well, we're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music for this uh, week. If you've enjoyed yourself, there's an opportunity to make a donation as you leave in cash or swiping a card, uh, or you can text, or you can use the wonderful QR code, which you'll find on the back of uh, the sheet to do wonderful QR things with. Now, do come on Sunday afternoon to our Choral Classics, which is going to be a celebration of madrigals. It's interesting, William Byrd didn't really like madrigals very much, but many people do, and there'll be plenty of chance to enjoy them on Sunday afternoon at 3.15. And we're going to have an American theme just after the 4th of July next Thursday for Great Sacred Music. Now, we're going to finish with a piece that in some ways sums up all the different themes that I've been talking about and the voices have been singing in the last half hour. It's uh, the Agnes Day from the Mass for Four Voices uh, by William Byrd. <coughs> and those of you who are used to hearing choral music in places like St. Martin Fields will think, oh, it's another Agnes Day. What's the big deal about that? But hopefully, after the last half hour, you'll be thinking, it's in Latin. How did he get away with that? Composing something in Latin was virtually treasonous at the time when he was composing because it was suggesting you were a Catholic and therefore aligned with Spain and the European powers against England. And the Armada, of course, in case anyone was in any doubt, made that very visible. But also, it's very, very Catholic. The Agnes Day is one of the most Catholic parts of the Mass where we talk about the body of the real presence of the body of Christ in the bread uh, and the wine of the Eucharistic elements. So how did he get away with it? How did he get away with composing in Latin? How did he get away with such subversive statements in the music he was composing? Well, because his music was incredibly beautiful. And he, because people loved his music so much, they just looked the other way about his politics and his theology. And that's been a lesson we've taken at St. Martin the Fields. You can get away with pretty much anything if it's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs>